Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On this week's pod, some in industry are stepping up to express their opposition to the war in Ukraine. Who are they and what, if any, impact can we expect? Plus, we'll check in on the impact on CROs in Ukraine and Russia. And the latest gene editing data from Intellia are out. What does the readout mean for the program? And what opportunity do the results create for the company's pipeline? And we recap the latest episode of the BioCentury show, in which Steve sat down with ICER's Steve Pearson. But first, a word from our sponsor. Jato Capital is a global leading investment company with a patient benefit-driven approach that finances and accelerates the development and growth of groundbreaking medical innovation. Jato supports entrepreneurs through its expert, integrated, multi-talented team and through significant capital. For more information, visit jato.life or follow them on Twitter at jato underscore life or visit their LinkedIn profile. And jato is J-E-I-T-O. Steve, you spoke with several of the industry leaders who have signed a letter committing to complete economic disengagement with Russia. Who is behind this initiative and what do they hope to accomplish? Yeah, so I spoke last night with three of the authors of the letter, Jeremy Levin from Ovid Therapeutics, Peter Kolchinsky from RA Capital, and Paul Hastings from Encarta. It's worth noting that Paul is the current chair of BIO and Jeremy's the immediate past chair of BIO. They both emphasized that they were speaking on behalf of themselves and their companies and not the trade association. There are three other co-authors of the letter, John Mariganori, of course, the founding CEO of Al Nylum, and Meg Alexander, the chief corporate affairs officer of Ovid, and um, Ted Love, president and CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics. They wrote this letter and they've gotten more than 150 leaders of biotech companies and life sciences investors to sign on to it. One expressing horror over what's happening in Ukraine and pledging that they and their companies will act to try to pressure Russia to reverse its course by disengaging, both by not investing in life sciences in Russia and not accepting investments from. Russian entities and their companies. And of course, they're well aware that the scope of life sciences uh, investment back and forth between the US and Russia is not large enough that this action in itself is going to, to change things. But I think in, in speaking with them that it's still important. And I think for three reasons, it's symbolic. Symbols can be important. They've translated the letter into eight languages, including Russian and Ukrainian. And they hope that it provides some inspiration or comfort for anyone in Ukraine who may read it. They hope that it's going to embolden Russians who are expressing opposition to the war. And I think it's important for them to show their own employees that they're taking a public stand on a conflict that is really going to redefine 
their futures and all of our futures. Steve, we've actually seen in the last few years several letters come out from some of the same individuals, some others in biotech calling for this or that. When I look at this one, it seems to me actually that it stands out to some degree from the others. This is an international event or incident. Perhaps it's because it grabs at all of us that bit more closely. I think there's obviously an understanding, as you pointed out, that one letter isn't going to change the world. That said, a lot of biotechs do have some form of operations, sometimes investment and sometimes clinical trials that are going to be affected by this crisis. I wonder if you have any sense of how much of an actual hit to biotech companies the folks you spoke with indicated it might have. So I think that there's two main ways that it'll have impacts. One is in persuading American and European companies to steer away from conducting clinical research in Russia. There's an extensive CRO service industry in Russia. Quite honestly, whether or not they pledge to do so, I think that their options for doing clinical research in Russia are going to be pretty much none for the foreseeable future in any case because of the sanctions, because of the war disruption, because of the collapse of the Russian economy that's going to be provoked by the sanctions. And then there's the issue of Russian money for American and European biotechs. There has been a substantial investment by Russian VCs, some of them state-backed, some of them private, and also by Russian individuals, so-called oligarchs, who have invested and created VC firms that have invested in a number of American and European companies. I think that turning that money away will be something that will be a real pain point for American and European companies that choose to do that. I think there's a sense that the individuals who invest in those companies or who would want to invest in American companies, they may be able to find other places to put their money, but this reinforces the signal that they and what they represent are considered pariahs and they're not going to be accepted in the world and in the circles that American life sciences investors and companies travel in until things change in Ukraine, until things change in Russia. Lauren, you took a look at clinical trials in Ukraine that are most at risk due to this crisis. What did you find? We found that there were over 300 interventional industry-sponsored clinical trials that are currently being run with sites in the Ukraine. But a lot of those trials, once they're big multinational phase three trials with one or two sites that may not face huge disruptions during this crisis, but there was a subset that have at least 25% of trial sites in the Ukraine. That was, I think it was 27 trials. And in a smaller subset of those were phase three studies. So there are some companies that are going to have to change their clinical development course, maybe start new trials or face some delays. And I think that obviously we're doing a similar analysis for Russia, and it's likely that we're going to find that there are some companies that are going to have to rejigger their development programs to go around Russia, to go around the need to conduct clinical trials in Russia. All right. Obviously, it's a fast-moving situation. We'll continue to dig into the impacts on 
the global biopharma industry, and you'll be able to follow our reporting on biocentury.com. Let's turn to the clinic now. Lauren, the latest data for Intellia's in vivo CRISPR-Cas9 gene therapy came out after the bell today. What does the readout mean for the program and what opportunity do the results create for the company's pipeline? So this is an update from the clinical trial results that were reported last June that doubled the company's share price. That was data from six patients. This is nine additional patients in the two higher cohorts, dose cohorts of the four-dose single ascending dose study. And it takes Intelia over the threshold that they were hoping to achieve in terms of editing efficiency. They found that at the higher dose, they're able to knock down the gene that's ultimately responsible for transthyretin amyloidosis, even more than in the lower dose. They found that these responses that they've gotten are durable. And so I think those were two of the biggest questions that were outstanding. It's, you know, how high can we push the editing efficiency and and does this achieve the promise of in vivo CRISPR gene editing, which is one-time therapy to make these permanent changes. So they were able to achieve a, a mean 93% reduction in TTR levels in six patients who were treated at the highest dose. So they'll go forward with this high dose. Actually, a, they were at a one milligram per kilogram dose and, and the safety profile was also favorable enough that they're able to do a fixed dose moving forward, which is comparable to that dose level. So Lauren, is this it? Is this the proof of principle for gene editing in vivo? So I asked the CEO, John Leonard, that this morning, and he said that they think they had their proof of principle in June. That's when they started ramping up their pipeline to take advantage of this first mover advantage that they have. They have another program in hereditary angioedema that's, that will have some data this year. And he said, we're moving forward with an accelerated strategy. This is specific to in vivo CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing targeting the liver. It's harder to get these in vivo therapies to other tissues. And Intelia made a decision to move forward with lipid nanoparticles from the start. And that seems to be a good bet. That's, that's a good way to get at the liver. It's an entirely different beast going after other tissues, but that still opens up a lot of possibilities for indications that affect the liver. Not to get too mushy about this, but I think we really should just acknowledge, I mean, this is a technology that is less than a decade old, right? I mean, and when I say less than a decade old, I mean, from a first academic publication about it. And we all know where that went with a lot, of, a lot of controversy over where it was invented and when, but let's put it in the 2012-2013 timeline. So that's a just tremendously exciting demonstration of in vivo capability from this new technology, which even given all the limits that you've just talked about, it's the liver and so on, is surely going to ripple through to the what is it you've counted now, a gazillion, a gatrillion or whatever it's called, other companies pursuing the technology? Yeah. And I think we have to give credit to Intelia for the decisions that they've made in moving forward with these programs. This was among the first, what we call foundational CRISPR companies. This was the company that chose to go forward with the higher risk, but also higher reward systemic in vivo strategy. 
And even at this point, they're a year into this clinical study, and I don't think there are any other similar programs in the clinic yet. So they have this huge head start, this big opportunity to go after similar indications. And there are quite a few. When I spoke with the CEO this morning, he mentioned that the reason ATTR is such a good first indication is that when you reduce levels of the TTR gene, we know that they're, that those correlate very well with clinical outcomes. And that's not a given for a lot of these genetic disorders where it all depends on the timing. If the damage is already done and you, you target the gene responsible for an indication, you don't necessarily see a clinical outcome. He said they're really focused on these targets where there's not a lot of target risk. And there are quite a few indications where that is possible. And he said sort of the next step, instead of taking on more target risk, is taking on more risk with the platform. So they'll move toward knock-ins, you know, replacing a gene instead of knocking it out, which is another challenge. But there's just, there's a big opportunity for this company to do a lot with the progress that they've made. It'll be interesting to see where they go. And again, this indication is one where other technologies have also forged their path as well. RNAi, for example, and I believe that there's also antisense products and maybe even small molecule because at the end of the day, the patient doesn't care about the technology. The patient cares about the result. Any sense of how this stacks up against those? So when I last looked at it in June, nothing else achieved knockdown greater than 80%. I don't know if that has changed. There are a couple other new modalities on the market. It's more effective and CRISPR-Cas9 is potentially a one-time treatment, which is the biggest difference for patients who would have to be treated with an siRNA or an RNAi relatively frequently every couple of months. Looking back at last year, the data really sent the stock on a tear. The day of the data, Intellia gained $3 billion in market cap, and it finished that week up 84%, which was a gain of about $5 billion in market cap. That turned the company almost overnight into an $11 billion company. It's obviously given back some of that amid the downturn for biotechs. They're sitting at around $7 billion right now. Here's hoping it's good for the sector. Uh, it's been a pretty dreary past 52 weeks. Any thoughts on that, Lauren? Well, their share price has risen about 20% over the last five days leading up to this announcement. So investors were optimistic about the data. And of course, CRISPR and Editas are also stocks to watch. They both gain nicely following the data last summer. So we'll see what happens when the market opens tomorrow. All right, Lauren, your piece is up on biocentry.com. And so folks who want to dig in deeper, I encourage you to read Lauren's piece. Let's wrap up by revisiting last week's The BioCentury Show. It was the third episode of our, our new program. And Steve, you spoke with ICER's Steve Pearson. What were some of the key takeaways from your conversation? Well, I talked to him about how ICER goes about determining what the value of a drug is, how it goes from what a value of a drug is to what a fair price is. And I brought up some of the complaints and challenges that patient advocates and biopharma companies have made about ICER. We talked about qualities and I asked him about the complaints that patients have about qualities. So they feel that it's a completely inappropriate way to value 
drugs and it devalues their lives and their suffering. He acknowledged that there's some legitimacy to those complaints and said that ISR is supplementing the use of qualities with other methods. And we talked about the importance of insurance benefit design, particularly reducing the out-of-pocket costs for patients, co-pays and deductibles and so forth, being really essential to improving access to drugs. Interestingly, I asked him about President Biden's comment that drug companies should be regulated like utilities. And Pearson rejected that idea, said drugs aren't widgets. You're not going to be able to tie the price to the cost of production, except possibly for generic drugs. I think it was a, it was quite an interesting and wide-ranging interview. I encourage people to listen to it. It's on the biocenturyshow.com, open access. Yeah. And ICER, of course, stands for the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. And like what they do or not, if you are active in biotech in the US, you need to know about what ICER is up to. And uh, a great place to start is with Steve Pearson himself during a break for the show. He actually apologized to Steve for not giving pithy, uh, quick answers. We, we said, no, no, more, more, keep digging deep, which is one thing that we really pride ourselves on. The BioCentury show is, is having these industry leaders really dig deep into what they're thinking and what they're doing. One thing I should say, I mentioned qualities. That's quality-adjusted life years. It's a way that health economists like to look at the benefits of various medical interventions. That's pretty widely used by health technology assessment agencies, but I believe Steve told you they also have another measure that they look at. Yeah, they, so I don't remember what the acronym for it is exactly, but basically it's equal life years. And it's a way of saying that a drug that extends life has value and it's not tied to the quality. So it doesn't penalize drugs that extend the lives of people who are dealing with challenging medical conditions. Excellent. And we really just launched the BioCentury show. For those of you who haven't checked it out yet, it's a 30-minute in-depth conversation with some of the most prominent figures in life sciences. Our first two conversations, which are also up on the BioCenturyShow.com, were with Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, and John Euler, who is the CEO of China-based global biotech, Beijing. And we have some other great guests coming up. Simone will be speaking with Jamie Rubin later this year. She's the CFO of EQRX. And who else do we have? Who are you excited to talk to, Steve? So I'm going to be speaking with Richard Hatchett, who runs CEPI the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, I think is what CEPI stands for. Yeah. It's, it's probably the most important organization in the life sciences that very few people have ever heard of. They invest in companies that are developing vaccines as countermeasures for epidemics. They really jump-started the vaccine development for COVID-19. If it hadn't been for them, the whole world would be in a much worse position. They're continuing to work on COVID vaccines, and they're also developing plans to be able to put a vaccine for a future pandemic into production within 100 days of 
identifying the cause of the of the pandemic. Uh, I'm going to be speaking with Amy Abernathy. She's a former senior official at FDA. She was also the brains behind Flatiron, and um, now she's working at Verily Life Sciences. It'll be very interesting to hear what she's got to say. Excellent. A couple of others, Jeff. We've got Otello Stampakia, who's well-known in the VC community, founder of Omega Funds. Matai Maman, who is the head of R&D at J&J. I'm very much looking forward to that conversation, as well as Laurie Glincher, who's the president and CEO of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Laura Esserman, who is well-known in the cancer world. She's a professor at UCSF and is also one of the principal architects of the iSpy Adaptive Master Protocol trials. Excellent. And I will be speaking with Michael Gato, head of life sciences investment banking at JP Morgan. That also is coming up. But if you're looking for something to read now, uh, go to biocentury.com. We have a piece by associate editor and my fellow podcast host, Stephen Hansen, on Biocon's latest deal. They, uh, are buying Viatris in a bid to expand their reach globally. That's a $3 billion plus plus cash and stock deal. And it's Rare Disease Day. We have a guest comment on rare disease patients facing a potential lack of access to gene therapies that's well worth reading. You can find that on our website. All of BioCentury's Podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 